I change things. Greg's not ready. They make one little change. I feel like I normally have a prayer to get this put on after music there. Want to make sure you have plenty of time. Yep, yep. There. All right, you get to see how awkward that is to put on. It's like a puzzle on your ears. All right, so we're continuing on in the book of Jonah this week. Surprise, surprise. Chapter 3 this week. So I like to do a little review of the first two chapters that we looked at. And just to bring you so some things are fresh in your mind when we, when we get to this third chapter. Do you remember back in chapter 1, the Lord comes to Jonah and says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me, right? And Jonah decides, I'm going to flee from the presence of the Lord instead of do as he commands me. And some of the reason for that is the Assyrians, the city of Nineveh, which is the capital of Assyria, are enemies of Israel, and they are not a gentle enemy. They are very cruel people. And so Jonah decides to flee. He's not going to obey the Lord. And then the ship, the Lord causes a storm to come upon the ship that Jonah's taking. Jonah's going to the farthest place away he can think of, uh, Tarshish, which is as far west as possible at that time, as far as they know. And he's sleeping when the storm comes, and they finally, they determine that it's him by drawing lots. And he admits, yes, I am fleeing from the presence of the Lord, and the Lord that I am fleeing from is greater than all of your gods that you've been praying to that can do nothing. And they ultimately come to the decision that the way to solve this problem is for Jonah to go overboard into the water, right? And Jonah's swallowed by a great fish. But this is a fish that the Lord appointed, we see in verse 17 of chapter 1. It says, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. God is sovereignly working his plan here. And he's in that belly of that fish for three days, three nights. Just something that Christ refers to later in his ministry. This will be the sign that you will receive is the sign of Jonah. Christ in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights. And last week we looked through chapter 2 of Jonah. And we just see there the... The Psalms, just all throughout that, it was just amazing how many different references we can pull from the Psalms and Jonah's prayer in chapter 2. But it ultimately ends in chapter 2 with the apparent repentance of Jonah, right? He has, he has come around. And it, it ends in verse 10, it says, The Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. She, you think if, the, if he's getting spit out on dry land, that means the fish is most likely on dry land. The fish is most likely, this is probably the end of that fish. Large fish that can, are large enough to swallow a man do not survive when they are on dry land. Um, and there was, I, my wife and I were talking last week, and I had mentioned, you know, if you look at the length of Jonah's prayer, it's not very long, right? You know, it takes me like a little over a minute to read. And so, and Christ had talked about, you know, don't pray for others to see you, these long, never-ending prayers, right? And I don't want you to take that as like, well, if your prayers are longer than a minute, you're doing it wrong. That's not my intention of speaking that. Christ was talking about if you're praying out in public and the goal of your praying this a long prayer is so others will honor you, you're doing it wrong, right? And if you sit down to pray and you can't think of long things to pray about, it's, it's okay. 
you can have a short prayer. And your prayers can also be long if that is what is on your heart at that time. But if you are praying intentionally in front of others and your goal is to be long and eloquent and to impress them, you're impressing the wrong people. You are praying for the wrong one. Your prayers are to honor God. So we get into to chapter 3. Go ahead. and We read. I had Tom read Psalm 51 because um, I thought that was just a great prayer of the repentance of David. And that's what we see throughout chapter 3 is ultimately you have the repentance of the city of Nineveh, which serves as a good, a good example. Uh, the, some of the sermons that I had listened to in preparing for this, one of them was like his title was The Greatest Revival Ever. Right? We've had, we know in the history of America, there have been some really great revivals. In the history of England, there have been some great revivals. And I think what he was pointing out is like, as this as the greatest revival ever, it's where was the starting point? Where was Nineveh at as a starting point for this revival? Right? They're in as far in rebellion against God as you could possibly get. Right? In America, in the revivals they've had, yes, there's rebellion, but there's a history of a Christian heritage there that they maybe have thrown off, but that they're aware of it. There's a revival going on amongst the people who are aware of Christ and Scripture. And in the case of Nineveh, it's like going from, they have no history of God, no history of of redemption, and yet there is a true repentance here. So the greatest revival in history, I think, was a good was a good point. So starting in chapter chapter 3 of Jonah, we have 10 verses here. Starting in verse 1. <clears throat> it says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. The people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. He issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger, so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So we start out in verse 1 there. It says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. And it seems there's an immediacy here. So we end in chapter 2, verse 10. It says, And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. And then the very next verse, chapter 3, says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. It seems, just reading this as it stands, he gets spit out on the dry land, and he's like, Arise and go to Nineveh. <laughs> he like, doesn't have a, this, like, okay, well, you get a little reprieve here. Right? No, I get back to your job, right? Arise. And you see that word arise, we saw it throughout the first chapter, you know, verse 2, God's command was arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. But it's this idea of take action, get up, go. And this, this commission that was given to him is now renewed. And the thought I had was, the only way Jonah's getting out of going to Nineveh is by dying. And he had plenty of opportunity to die, and it didn't happen. He's going to Nineveh.
and that this, the, this receiving of this commission again, we talked at the end of chapter two of the repentance of Jonah. This, in verse nine, he was talking about he would offer a sacrifice and he would, what he has vowed he will pay and salvation belongs to the Lord. So Jonah has been made right with God again from where he was and now this commission is renewed for him. This is, you're back at it. And I liked that I was thinking, this is a good model for discipline, right? Jonah, directions were given to Jonah. He chose to disobey them, right? He said, I am fleeing from the presence of the Lord. I'm not going to do what he told me to do. Discipline is issued, right? He's thrown overboard. He almost drowns. He's swallowed by a fish three days. It's not an easy experience, but he's disciplined, there's repentance on the one who is disciplined's part. And then once again, the directions are given a second time, and obedience follows. The, the original directions are not disregarded. God said, well, God didn't say, well, since you didn't want to do that, I'm going to punish you, but now you don't have to do it, right? That's, that's not how discipline works. When uh, my kids, I give them instruction, and they say, Dad, I'm not doing that. So, okay, well, discipline will follow, and now you will do that thing. You don't get out of it because you receive discipline. That is not your payment for, well, I got a spanking, so now I don't have to do that. Like, I, I, I'll take the punishment instead of doing that thing. Well, no, you get punishment, and you have to do the thing you didn't want to do. So just so you know, it'd be easier for you in the future if you would just do it when you were first told. Right, and that's I get this picture with Jonah. Like Jonah goes a long way to Nineveh. Right, he's I'm gonna go to Tarshish. Well, you can head to Tarshish. You're gonna get swallowed by a fish, and then you're gonna go to Nineveh. You're gonna be much worse for the wear. He's not getting out of this, and so verse two he says, "Arise." This is God's command to Jonah. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Sounds very similar to what he was told in verse in chapter 1, that initial command. So once again, arise, get up, take action. And he says, go to Nineveh, that great city. And we talked some in the first chapter about Nineveh being a great city, right? And so some of the things that point to the greatness of Nineveh would be Nineveh was, Nineveh was most likely one of the largest cities on the earth at that time. It's the capital of Assyria, which is the world's superpower at that time, right? Their population, I've come across different things. Some sources say it's probably 600,000 people, maybe a million people. For us, that's not like a massive city, but it's also not small. But for them, it would have been the largest. So it's that great city. And there's also an implication, like not only is it great in the eyes of man, but there's a greatness there that God views, even just in the fact there are so many people there. And people are made in God's image, regardless of their obedience to God or not. And he values people because of that. And so there's a greatness applied to Nineveh just because so many people are there. And I'm, this command given to Jonah again, right? So this, you get this picture of, so once repentance has happened, so Jonah has repented, the relationship is restored with God, and part of that relationship was Jonah was God's servant, right? It, is, it picks up where it left off. This is not brought up again. It's like, you're going to go to Nineveh, but now I'm going to have to like hold your hand and do everything for you because you're obviously you know, a troublemaker. That's not what it is. It's, here's the command, go follow it. And it's a, good, uh, it's a good picture, I think, of how discipline should work in our own lives, right? The Disobedience happens, discipline happens, the relationship is restored. It is not brought up again. It is not a further stumbling block, further stumbling block in that relationship. 
it is restored. There were a couple different translations treated that where it says, call out against it the message that I tell you. I'm reading the ESV. The King James says, preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. And the New American Standard says, proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. So he is giving this message, and God is going to give it to him. And we don't know exactly what it is. We know in chapter 1, when God told him, he said, call out against it, right? So this would be a message of judgment that was given in chapter 1. And we see again that it will be the same thing. If you look at verse 4 of chapter 3, the message that he calls out is, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And so you get verse 3. This time it says, Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. So obedience follows on Jonah's part this time. There is now a positive response to the Lord's renewed commission. And it says, according to the word of the Lord, right? He's obedient to that command now, as opposed to prior, he was disobedient. Prior, he chose to flee the opposite direction. He chose to go the other way. And which was verse, chapter 1, verse 3, where it said, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, right? There, there's now a contrast in the actions of Jonah. And so I was thinking, what, would it, what was that journey possibly like, right? He rose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. And then it just jumps into, it says, now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three journeys, three days journey in breath. And there's different translations that don't give don't seem quite as clear where you might get the impression, well, it takes three days to get to Nineveh from where Jonah was. But if you look at a map and see, like, where's the closest body of water? Where's there a beach? And then where did, how long would it take to get to Nineveh? So just doing like a little Google mapping and looking at the port of Jaffa, which is modern-day Joppa, to Mosul, Iraq, which is next door to where Nineveh was, is roughly a 10-day journey by foot nowadays. And that is with our modern roads. So you have to think, it probably took Jonah like two, three weeks to make this trip, unless he could hop a camel or some sort of a wagon train to get there. But it's not a three-day trip. It's going to take him a while to get there. So this is, once again, the deliberate obedience of Jonah to the command of God. It was interesting, it was, there were some parallels here. In Matthew 21, the Lord gives a parable of two sons. If I can find it there. Matthew 21, verses 28 through 32 sort of describes a similar kind of experience. And it says, what do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? And they said, the first. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For God came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Just the rightness of relationship. The, the command is given, and even though the first son said, I'm not doing that, he ultimately does do it, right? And then the second says, oh, I'll do it. But then he doesn't do it. 
God requires actual obedience, actual follow-through, not just surface level, yeah, I'll do what you say, and then not doing it. But this rightness of relationship. Jonah is the, sort of that picture of that first son where he says, I'm not doing that. He, he disobeys. But then ultimately, he ends up going. But it takes correction on the Lord's part from him. So again, we have verse 3 here. This says, Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. So you have this exceedingly great, which we touched on, the, the amount of the population. And then you have three days' journey in breadth. So that's the, the amount of time it would take to walk across the city. And so some of the information I've found about the historical size of Nineveh would be it's roughly seven to eight miles in circumference, so all the way around it. And so in, even like, you know, most cities, you have like the main like downtown part and then you have like the urban sprawl that goes out from there. And so you'd, what I was finding was like the, sort of the overall metropolitan area around Nineveh would cover almost 60 miles. So just this massive city. And again, we touched on the amount of people there, which is mentioned in Jonah 4.11. Population between 600,000 to a million people. But just this greatness, right? There's, And this is just exceedingly great city. And just to give you an idea, three days' journey in breadth. And so then verse 4 goes in and says, Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey. So out of that three days' journey in breadth, he is into it one day. So he's a third of the way into the city, apparently. And some of the what I was thinking of when it says Jonah began to go into the city. I don't get this impression that when Jonah got to Nineveh, he's like, all right, that was a long, hard journey. I'm going to take a break for a couple days. I'm going to rest, so I'm ready, I'm refreshed, I'm just really able to, to go at this. It seems implied that when he reaches Nineveh, the preaching begins. And I even saw... So, my initial impression reading that is, well, after he gets a day's journey into the city, he begins his preaching. But as I thought about it more, it seems more so that once he is a day's journey into the city is when he starts getting the response from the people, where verse 5 says, and the people of Nineveh believed God, right? But he calls out, Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown, right? What a, what a message, message to go preach. How much did Jonah endure to go preach this message? Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown, right? What a, what a long, hard journey to preach such a brief message, right? But there are implications to that message, which you see carried out later. So God gives this, this warning of, well, 40 days and you're overthrown. And you get this, well, 40 days implies that there's some time here. Maybe this can be undone, right? If God wanted to destroy Nineveh, absolutely. Why would he send a warning, right? Why would he give them 40 days? If he wanted to do it, he would just do it. which is later in the chapter in verse 9 where the king says, who knows God may turn and relent. So keep that in mind, right? Jonah's message of 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. 40 days is a common theme in scripture is what I was, something I was thinking upon here. So in the flood of Noah... So you have rain fell for 40 days and 40 nights in that judgment. Moses receives the tablets of the Ten Commandments. He is on the mountain for 40 days. When the Israelites spy out the land of Canaan, they're there for 40 days spying it out. And when Goliath taunted Israel, he did that for 40 days. 
Christ was tempted in the wilderness for 40 days. And Christ appeared to the apostles for 40 days after his resurrection. You just see this commonality of 40 days is a common period of time in scripture. Some of them are 40 days of judgment. Some of it is 40 days of trials. 40 days of testing, a time of correction, a time of instruction. And this is the time that's allotted to Nineveh to repent. An offering of grace and mercy to Nineveh, right? Like I said, God could have destroyed Nineveh anytime he wanted to, if that was his desire. The desire was for Nineveh to repent. And I'm thinking as Jonah's declaring this message, this seemingly brief message, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Why would they listen to this guy, right? Some guy just shows up and starts saying, 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown, right? Remember, Jonah's been in the belly of this fish for three days. And even though it's taken him some time to get to Nineveh, I think it still has had a lasting effect on his appearance, right? Which causes people to probably ask, like, what happened to you? Like, why do you look so strange? Your skin's bleached. You're like something was chewing on you. What happened? He's like, well, I was supposed to do this uh, a month ago, and I chose not to. And I got swallowed by a fish, and here I am, right? And them being pagans would see something like that and apply some significance to it beyond just the marvelousness of this story. And so this gives him some extra credibility, I think, in the eyes of these pagans. And there's been, as I was listening to some different sermons on this, there, there was talk of Nineveh had recently experienced plagues. They had recently experienced some solar eclipses where they would have just dark for, for days. They were, had experienced things that, to those that are pagans, are signs that something is going on. And so then, when this man shows up, there's maybe some more receptivity. I, I don't know for certain, but that's, God was working out a plan here. But in verse 5, you have that response, right? And this is within the first day of his preaching. It says, And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. So the response is they believed. They, they have a quick response here, right? How great would that be if you're out preaching on the street corner and all of a sudden everyone's like, yeah, this is what this guy is saying is true. We need to have a response to this, right? Wouldn't that be awesome? And Jonah shows up one day into it and the people believe. Ultimately, you find out in chapter four, that's the very thing that Jonah was afraid of. He didn't want that to happen. That's why he fled the other way. He was afraid they would believe. But you see, not only do they believe, but they take action, right? So it says, and the people believed God, and they called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. So there's belief followed by an outward action. So this calling for a fast, putting on sackcloth, this is traditional sign of mourning in the ancient Near East. We have examples of it throughout the Old Testament, but even in the, the Persian area where they are at, that is, that is common practice. And I think most of us have an idea what sackcloth is, right? Our modern equivalent is like a burlap bag, this scratchy, not fine cloth. It's, it's rough. It's a utilitarian material. And that's with our modern, like, weaving abilities. I imagine sackcloth then was even worse than it is now. But also the idea of fasting, right? This, every time that you get a hunger pang, it reminds you to pray of why am I feeling this hunger, Right? 
And I wanted to look, 1 Kings chapter 21 gives an example of this with King Ahab. Verses 25 through 29 of 1 Kings chapter 21. Now this says, There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel his wife incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. So you have King Ahab is, it says, no one sold himself to do what was evil like he did. And in the prior, there was instructions given of the, what's going to happen to Israel because of his disobedience, right? But it says in verse 27, And when Ahab heard those words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days I will bring the disaster upon his house. You have this example of God pronounces judgment. The hearer is receptive, repents, and they even go about this same wearing sackcloth, fasting, and God relents. Right, So this biblical example in kings of a very similar thing. And that is a king of Israel, not a pagan nation of Nineveh. And it says in that verse 5, it says, it was from the greatest of them to the least of them. So from those who are highest up in society to those who are the lowest of society. This was reaching throughout. It was not contained to just one area of the culture. It was everybody. Verse 6 goes on and says, The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. So now you have the same response, just as it said from the greatest, this would be the greatest in Nineveh has the same response, right? This is reaching all the people in Nineveh. And it's not just a, he's like, well, everyone else is doing it, so I'm going to go along with the people so that they're satisfied. But this is that personal response of him, right? He arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and then it adds, he sat in ashes. I was reading some about like, so what's the, the deal with the ashes, right? It's this public sign of mourning. So they would rub the ashes on their face usually, and it would give the face a pale appearance, so this, this look of like sickliness, of dejectedness. But then beyond just the look of the ashes rubbed on the faces, it would be, well, as they're crying, as they're mourning, you now have ash and streaks of tears, right? You ladies that wear mascara are kind of familiar with this. If you cry with your mascara on, it kind of makes a bit of a mess. Um, but they have these ashes on, and it's just this appearance that makes it known to everybody, this is what's happening. But the king himself is setting an example. So even those who maybe in that initial encounter have not decided to, to repent themselves and to jump in with the, to, to fast and to put on sackcloth. So now the king is going to get involved it says in verse 7, and he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, right? He makes this an official thing. This is now, everybody's doing this. Official proclamation. And it says in the, the next section there, it says, by the decree of the king and his nobles. So it goes beyond, this is all those who are the, amongst the greatest. The king and his nobles have come to this conclusion. This is an agreement amongst them where it says, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Right. So they are now declaring a fast and the fast reaches beyond just people. It even goes to the animals. Right. Even the animals are involved in this, which is, 
we don't normally think about that, right? Like, oh, I'm going to get my animals involved in this whole process of repentance, right? But there's, it would have been, I feel like it would have been really unique to be there because it would have just been everybody's in sackcloth, everybody's in ashes, even the animals are wearing sackcloth, and even they are lowing because they're so hungry because they're not eating and they don't know why they're animals, right? But let's say God judges Nineveh and destroys the whole city. Animals would likely be destroyed along with it, right? They would also receive that punishment. So they, they all get involved with this repentance, with this outward sign. He says, let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Right? So even the, the cries of these hungry animals is going up to God and is being heard is their intention. It was, there was a historical example of, uh, in this Persian mourning custom of a Persian general being killed. And when this is known, the horses and mules are shorn, they are shaved as a sign of mourning. So amongst their custom was even the animals got involved in the mourning. But this is that the showing of this, this repentance is going wide. It goes deep. And even when we get to chapter 4, when God is in verse 11, and he says, And should I not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from the left, and also much cattle? Right? So God takes into consideration these animals. And so then you have this command for the animals to fast, let them not feed or drink water. Then in verse 8 he says, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Right? So now the sackcloth is everybody, everywhere, everything. Let them call out mightily to God. So this outward sign of repentance, this and. It's as you go out into the city, everybody and every living thing you see now has sackcloth in, right? So if you've been on the fence of whether you're going to repent, you're like, it's, it's everywhere. It's okay. Maybe this is something, right? And he says... But that second half of verse 8, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Right? All sinners have evil ways and they have violence in their hands, right? The Assyrians were particularly skilled at violence and evil. Um, we covered some in the first chapter about Assyria and what they did. But they, they would leave, they carved in stone images of how they treated those they conquered, right? Mountains of skulls from people, people's eyes being gouged out, people's tongues being pulled out, people being skinned alive, people being placed on pikes. They, they did such evil to image bearers of God as a way of psychological warfare against possible enemies. They were just... They were cruel beyond what we are used to even. And they were proud of it to the point where they carved it into stone to show it off to others. But he says, but let man, let everyone turn from this evil and from the violence that is in his hands. So you have the outward sign of the ashes. You have the outward sign of sackcloth. But then you have this turning from the evil, right? True repentance is turning from sin. It is admitting that there is a sin problem, right? That, that outward sign. But then there is an actual turning from it, abandoning it, leaving it behind. And that is what the king is declaring. This is a proclamation from him. This isn't a suggestion. This isn't some like, hey, we should do this. No, this is a proclamation, a decree that was issued. This is what you are to do. Turn from this evil. 
And he says in verse 9, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Right? There is a hope on the part of the king that genuine repentance may avert divine judgment. Right? The fact that God sent Jonah to proclaim destruction in 40 days gives them hope that God may relent, turn from his fierce anger, right? Like I said earlier, God could have done it anytime he wanted to. He didn't have to send Jonah in order to destroy them. He could have just said, Nineveh, you're done, and destroyed them. You see, you see this pattern throughout Scripture of God sending a warning. Like, if you continue on this road, I will destroy you. But if you repent... I will relent, right? There's, in Joel 2, there's that pattern. Um, where he gets to in verses 13 and 14 in Joel 2, it says, Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will turn and relent, leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. So in Joel, he has this turn, Maybe the Lord will not destroy us, right? In Psalm 86, there's, in verse 5, it says, For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Right? This calling out in repentance. God is gracious in mercy. He is rich in mercy. In Psalm 86, verse 15, it says, But you, O Lord, are God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This picture that God's love and faithfulness is abounding. It is, it is great. But it is not just, it requires being made right to receive it. And you have the response in verse 10 of God, where it says, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So you have this true repentance on the part of the Ninevites. God does not destroy them, right? They turned from their evil ways, as he had said, as the king said. So it's not just fasting and sackcloth. It's not just doing religious things, but there was actually a true change in heart. And if you say, well, well did they truly repent? Because don't they eventually come back on the scene and just wipe out Israel and take them into captivity? Well, Christ in Matthew 12, verse 41, talked about how the men of Nineveh would stand up at the judgment and condemn that generation, right? So they are... True repent, truly repentant, as Christ says. And I was thinking about, so the Nineveh's being repentant here, and yet we know eventually they do come against Israel. And we had, in Second Kings, there was a prophecy. It said, that's the other mention we have of Jonah, where it says he prophesied that Israel's boundaries would increase, right? And, and they did. And... When I first read that, I was like, okay, well, that happens before Jonah goes to Nineveh because as I'm turning my Bible, that's before it. As as I've been studying through Jonah, I'm like, well, you see a cause and effect here where Jonah goes, preaches to the Ninevites. They repent. They are now right with God. And as a part of that repentance would be they no longer are warring people, at least for that generation. And then you see Israel's boundaries expand, right? They are no longer warring people. But it would seem that this repentance only lasts for maybe a generation at best, right? Because as we study scripture, we see that Assyria eventually comes back on the scene worse than ever, right? And you see this, this picture of this is graciousness to the Ninevites, but in being gracious to the Ninevites, God is also being gracious to Israel and putting off his judgment to them. The, the Ninevites are put on hold for at least a generation, giving the Israelites more time to repent. 
And so, looking through this, we see the Ninevites are truly repentant. They are broken, they are sorrowful over their sins, and they turn from their evil ways. That is true repentance. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10 says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Right? True repentance, being made right with God, puts us in right relationship with God, whereas worldly repentance does not correct that relationship with God and ultimately leads to death. There was... I was reading different resources, and they were it was saying, I don't speak Greek. So, I'm <laughs> But it says the Greek word for repentance that's commonly translated is metanoia. And the literal meaning of metanoia is a change of mind. So when we're thinking of repentance, we're thinking of turning away and this change of mind. Things are different. You're going from a place where sin is enjoyed to a place of detesting sin, of hating it. It means that there is sorrow for sins that have been committed, not just the consequences of those sins. And there is a desire to see true change. There is a turning away from sin and a turning to God, placing of faith in Christ, a change of mind. And I was thinking, as we talk about repentance, you have repentance in the Christian life should be twofold. Right, You have that initial repentance of coming to Christ, of turning from sin and placing faith in Christ. You have that repentance that leads to salvation. And then as we walk with the Lord, we are not instantly sinless. Right, we, There are still sins that we deal with as we walk with the Lord. And there should still be an ongoing repentance of putting that sin to death Your salvation is not dependent on this continual repentance, but this is a part of the becoming more Christ-like, is repenting of that sin. But that should be the mindset of the believers. They become more Christ-like over time. So that's what I have for you. I'll I'll close this in a word of prayer, then you can come. Heavenly Father, I, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this example of your graciousness and mercy poured out on the Ninevites, Lord, and on the Israelites through the Ninevites. Just ask you to, to help us to have a similar attitude of repentance in our own lives, of a desire to, to be putting sin to death, Lord, to become more Christ-like in our Christian walk. In Jesus' name, amen. Read that. Jonah preached a simple message, but it was from a great God. And it had a great effect. And all you had to do is simply trust in the one who sent the message. We're going to sing that song now, Trusting Jesus. Let's stand and sing 613. Simply trusting every day, trusting through a stormy way, even when my faith is small, trusting Jesus that is all, trusting as the moments fly, trusting as the days go by, trusting Him whatever befall, trusting Jesus that is all. Brightly does His Spirit shine into this poor heart of mine, while He that is all trusting as the moments fly trusting as the days go
go by, trusting Him, whatever befall, trusting Jesus, that is all, singing if my way is clear, praying if the path be drear, if in danger for him call, trusting Jesus, that is all, trusting as the moments fly, trusting as the days go by, trusting him, whatever befall, trusting Jesus, that is all, trusting Him while life shall last, trusting Him till earth be past, till within the jasper walls, trusting Jesus, that is all, trusting as the moments fly, trusting as the days go by, trusting Him whatever befall, trusting Jesus that is all. Gracious Father, as we see what happened to Jonah and his willingness then to trust Jesus or trust God and, and go into Nineveh. His greatest desire was that his enemies would be destroyed. But Lord, in your mercy, you brought to them a merciful salvation from destruction because they responded to you. They responded to the message you sent and to the preacher. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to be so soft-hearted towards you that we would trust in you with every moment of our life, that even as you would clearly give us outlines of a different path, that we would trust you in that as well. Lord, much goes on in our life. We have great peace in knowing that you're the one who cares for it. Send us off today being thankful for an amazing and merciful God. In your son's precious name, amen. You're dismissed.